You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Before we move forward to James, if you will take your Bible and open very briefly to the book of Deuteronomy. And we are going to look at one verse in chapter 29 before we jump in here. Now, the reason that I'm turning to this verse is because this verse is often used as a principle for us to keep ourselves in a state of humility as we search the scriptures. And so uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 reads, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. And so this principle here is that there are some things about God that he doesn't reveal to us. There are secret things of the Lord. Some of this is a function of the fact that we are limited creatures and God is infinite. And so God could not possibly reveal every infinite, the infiniteness of himself to us. We simply couldn't contain that knowledge. But there are also things that we can speculate on some level that God simply does not reveal for his own reasons. That said, the things that he does reveal to us, they are for us and for our children so that we can serve him. And today's sermon topic is one of those things that sometimes feels like we're trying to peer into the secret things of the Lord. It sometimes feels like we're overstepping those boundaries. But in reality, the Lord has revealed much of this to us in his word. And so we not only have a privilege to do it, uh, to to search into those things, but we also have a responsibility when the the word of the Lord brings us to these things to do our diligence to study them. So all of that said, I'm going to read uh, James 4. I'm going to read our passage again. So if you'll turn back over to James chapter 4. We will be um, jumping in and out of a few other scriptures. So if you have your bulletin, it might be a good idea just to toss that right in James so you can make your way back to it when we um, pit stop somewhere else. But I'm going to read again, starting in verse 13, so this is fresh in our mind. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why Why do you do even, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So this this small section has a lot of dense theology packed into it. And um, there's always different ways to approach a passage. The scripture only means one thing, but that doesn't mean that there's only one application to uh, to a passage. So in this instance, there's lots of different things we could focus on. But what we're going to look at today is first, we're going to look at the, the beginning passage of this, which talks about the human arrogance of thinking that we are sovereigns. Next, we're going to take a look at what James teaches us about divine providence and how divine providence functions. And then finally, we're going to make some application um, in the back half of this about what it is that we should do about that. So we're going to look at human arrogance in relation to thinking we're sovereigns. 
We're going to look at how divine providence operates and how that corrects our arrogance. And then we're going to apply that uh, in the last two verses here. So James starts this section in verse 13 here with a phrase we haven't seen commonly. There's a lot of my brothers this, my brothers that. What he says here is now listen. This is a, a signal that there is a topic change. So obviously the letter is a cohesive whole. We talked about that last week, that these, um, these subject headings or even the way the paragraphs are broken up are not inspired. But there are words and phrases like this that signal to us that James is pivoting to a new topic. So this would be like if we were talking about something um, and uh, a thought came to mind and said, now wait a minute, now you really, really need to pay attention to this. It signals to us that he's, he's got a new thought going and that we need to perk up and listen. He follows it by saying, you who say, or the one who says. The fact that this is a, an address, a second person address, meaning he's talking directly to somebody rather than a third person address where he's talking about somebody. So sometimes he talks about the rich and we have signals in the text that he's not talking about any specific person in his congregation. When he says, now you who say, he's, he's pointing out to the audience that there are those in his congregation that are receiving this letter. There are those among the 12 tribes in the dispersion who would say something like what he is about to say. So he says, listen up. This is for the people who actually think this way. I need you to pay attention to it. Now by divine inspiration, we're also those people. So James is telling us, look, this is the kind of thing that you might fall into the trap of saying. So listen up. Now he uses these general terms. Um, it would be kind of like if I started a, a story and I started out by saying once upon a time. Right? That signals to you that I'm not talking about a specific historical event. I'm not, I'm not reporting the news. I'm creating this narrative, this sort of fictional narrative that could have happened in a variety of places or a variety of times. So when he says this sort of hypothetical quote, he says, today or tomorrow, we would go into this or that city. It's intentionally gener general. So he's not, um, he's not quoting a specific person. He's not pointing out a specific instance or a specific perspective. Um, this passage is sometimes used to argue that business or profit or wealth are somehow um, automatically opposed to the gospel. So there's a lot of people out there in various traditions that would say, see, James here is saying you shouldn't, you shouldn't be a business person. That's sinful. You shouldn't, you shouldn't make money. You shouldn't seek to increase your wealth. There are lots of reasons that we won't get into that that just isn't the biblical perspective. Um, when you actually look at the way that God commands his people, the accumulation of wealth under trusting God and the proper use of wealth is something that is not only permissible, but is actually seen as favorable and in many ways commanded by God for us to increase our estate, for us to be uh, advocates for our neighbors to help increase their estate. So we shouldn't read this as a specific prohibition against doing business or making money or traveling or anything like that. It's intentionally general so that we don't do that. All of that said, though, in the next chapter, we're going to see some specific commentary and address to the rich. So he may have selected this particular example as a way to transition into the next one, but we should not necessarily read it as though it's only applicable to the concept of doing business. 
In this passage, the foolishness of the perspective he's putting forward is demonstrated by the fact that we have limited knowledge in existence. So when, when this hypothetical person says, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city or that city, we're going to make money, and then we'll come back. His answer is not, well, do you really think that's likely? His answer is basically, you foolish person, you don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow, let alone what's going to happen in a year. And he says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. He's calling his listeners to abandon the foolish idea that we are somehow impervious to the effects of the fall, that we won't die someday, that we know that a year from now we're still going to be alive and gainfully employed and healthy and able to conduct our business. Not out of some um, fatalistic idea that we have no control over the future, that we have no control over what happens, or from some or pessimistic idea that we certainly won't be alive in a year. James would have the same thing to say to people who lived their life as though they knew that the end was coming in the next six months. So we shouldn't read it that way either. His argument and his prohibition is against those who think they know what's going to happen and think they have total control over what's going to happen. He moves forward from that. That's all pretty straightforward. He moves forward from that to bring about the concept of divine providence. And this is a, this is a difficult doctrine. It's difficult intellectually. It's difficult for us to get our head around how it is that God operates and sustains the world. It's difficult for us spiritually because we most, most commonly think about this doctrine in terms of people's salvation. We think about those we know who either have died and were not in the Lord, as far as we know, or we think about those that we know and care about who do not follow the Lord or who have no desire in serving the Lord. And we know because of what scripture teaches that in some way, which we'll talk about, but in some way, that is the Lord's will. That happened because God desired it to happen. And on one level, we have to acknowledge that that means it couldn't have happened any other way. That's sometimes difficult emotionally when we think about those people that we know that either we have reason to think they have been lost to hell forever, or we have reason to think that that is their trajectory. But this is a, do a doctrine we have to grapple with because it's broader than just salvation. It's broader than just election and reprobation and, and those terms that we use. This encompasses our whole perspective on everything. And if we get this wrong, then we get a lot of other things wrong. So I know that we usually read from um, something called the Westminster Confession, or sometimes we dip into the Heidelberg Catechism. There was a, a Baptist named Benjamin Keach who took the Westminster Shorter Catechism and he adapted some of it to be more Baptist. And we don't jump into it as often because it's not as well known of a document, but I wanted to read a couple of the questions uh, from his catechism and the answers because I think they help us to see how this functions or at least gets our feet on the right ground. So in question 12 of his catechism, he says, how does God execute his decrees? And the answer is that God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. In 
13 and 14, he talks about what the works of creation are. And in question 15, he asks, what are God's works of providence? And his answer is that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Do you see how that's all inclusive? It's not just that he preserves all his creatures. It's not just that he governs all his creatures, but he preserves and governs not just his creatures, but all of their actions. What that means is that every action you take falls under the sovereignty of God. To sort of transport us back to this hypothetical, whether you live or die tomorrow, whether you go to this city or to that city, whether you make a profit or whether you suffer a loss, whether you're shipwrecked on the way home or assailed by bandits or get a car, car crash in the car on the highway on the way to the dentist, all of those things happen within God's sovereign plan and decree. Now, this is a complicated theology, and it would be a lot easier for us if we simply abandoned that idea and treated God as though he was just one cause among many causes in the universe. As though he was on the same playing field as us, and maybe he was just a little bit better at predicting what was going to happen and moving the chess pieces. But that is not the God that the Bible teaches us. It's not who he reveals himself to be. Theologically, the terms we use for this are primary and secondary causes. And I'll explain what those mean. When we say that God is the primary cause or the first cause of all things, we are not just saying that he stands in the first spot in a, ch a chain of effect. So if you think about a, a billiards table, you might be considered in a certain way the first cause because you're the energy that moves the ball. And then the ball bounces off the rail and it hits another ball and that ball bounces off the rail and goes into the pocket. In reality, you are changed by that action. When, you're, when you apply force to the cue and the cue strikes the ball, the ball applies force back on the cue and that force goes back into your arm. That's why you feel it when it happens. If we picture God as just the first cause in this chain of events, even if we say that he's this mastermind clock builder and he's orchestrated every detail, so everything unfolds according to his plan like a billiards table, if he's just the first cause, then we're saying that he is changed by us. That when he set that chain of events into action, that chain of events changed him as well. We make him a creature when we do that. So we can't think of God in those terms. We just can't do it. When we do that, We've, we've degraded God to the status of a creature who might be stronger than us. He might be smarter than us, but ultimately he is a creature like us. Instead, when we talk about primary cause or first cause, what we're saying is that God is able to sustain the universe. He can cause all things to be and all things to unfold in a way that does not change or affect him. This is part of why we can say that God if we qualify correctly, causes sin, but is not the author of sin. Sin happens according to God's will. It's not as though when you sin, somehow he doesn't realize that that was going to happen. It's also not as though he just passively allows it to happen. He is active in bringing about all things, but he is not changed by that activity. 
When we say secondary causes, now we're talking about the chain of offense. We're talking about the ordinary chain of natural causation. An example of where the scripture unfolds this distinction, or at least alludes to it, is in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 45. It says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes the sunrise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. If you were asked the question, what causes it to rain? We, there's a lot of different things we could answer, but the, the common scientific answer would be to say, there are dust particles high up in the sky and the water droplets in the sky form around that, and at a certain point, they become so heavy that they fall out of the sky. That's an explanation that points to secondary causes. That's a natural chain of causation. Or we could say, as Jesus does in this passage, God causes it to rain. Both of those statements are true in their respective ways of being true. Everything that happens... God causes to happen in this first way, this primary way. Partly because he just, he sustains the universe. Even the context in which it happens only happens because God allows it to continue to exist and causes it to continue to exist. Open your Bibles up to Genesis 1. Because I think sometimes we think this is like really high, difficult technical theology, and it is. And if we're not careful, we can think about it as though this is somehow imposed upon the Bible, that these are eggheads in the 16th and 17th century that are coming up with really great Latin terms to explain this. But if you turn to Genesis chapter 1, right in the beginning of the Bible, we see this distinction play out in full force. So we're going to be, uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, just read a few verses here, starting in chapter 1 here. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and morning the first day. Now jump down to uh, verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kind, the livestock according to the kind, and the creatures that move along the earth. So you see in those, those passages, God says, and it happens. There's no description of any sort of natural cause or any sort of activity. God says, and it happens. But then jump up a tiny bit to verse 11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. It was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it. So in some instances in Genesis 1, God simply says, let this happen, and it was so. In other instances, he decrees a process by which the creature that he has made continues to create. Hebrew uses different words for create there, and one distinguishes God's way of doing it, and one distinguishes this natural way. But even in the very opening of Genesis, we see this distinction. Sometimes God acts immediately, 
meaning there's no intermediary, there's no intermediate agent or thing that, that brings about the effect, God acts immediately. He simply says, let there be light and light springs into existence. There's no sufficient cause for that. Nothing caused the light to come into existence from a secondary cause perspective. It just popped into existence. And sometimes he says, this is going to be the natural order of the way things work. And everything unfolds according to those natural orders. We won't turn there, but even, in, even further in the book of Genesis, we see this distinction. So in Genesis 45, 7, it, we're sort of in the back part of the account of Joseph. His brothers have just been revealed to him. Uh, his brothers have just been revealed who he is, and they're afraid, which we all understand why they're afraid. And to comfort them, Joseph says in verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. The sinful actions of the brothers in first plotting to murder him and then in selling him to the slavers, the sinful actions of the slavers who, who stole a person, which the Old Testament tells us is punishable by death, the sinful actions of Potiphar's wife, which landed him in prison, the sinful actions of the cupbearer and the bread baker who forgot about Joseph and didn't fulfill their promise to remember him to, to Pharaoh. Every step in that chain, God sent Joseph ahead of his brothers. That was God who did that. But it was also each of those people doing that. Similarly, at the very end of Genesis, after Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers think, maybe Joseph won't be so kind to us now that good old dad is gone. And Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you see that? God intended it for good. You intended it for evil. God has his purposes and he causes things in the way that only God can. And it's always for good. Oftentimes people have their purposes and they cause things in a creaturely way. And most of the time we, we've intended for evil. This is why in the book of Romans, the verse we're so familiar with in chapter eight, it says God works all things together for good. We should not read this as some translations account it as all things work together for good. They translate it as though the all things are doing the working together. And it gives us this impression that like, it'll all come together in the end, right? I'm sorry that you had cancer, but it'll all work out. That is not what Paul is saying. What he literally says is we know that for the ones who love God, he works together all things for good, for the called according to his purpose ones. It is God who is working all things together for good. It is God who brings all things forth for good. This is divine providence in, in action. So when, when this hypothetical audience that James is bringing forward says, we'll go to this city, we'll go to that city, we'll make money, we're going to be fine. What they're doing is they are ignoring the fact that God governs and sovereigns all things. They think of themselves as God. Just like Joseph said when he responded to his brothers, am I God? You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. Am I in a place of sovereignty where I control these situations? It is not the case that we do not act freely. 
This doesn't result in some fatalistic, whatever will be, will be, and we have no control over that. Our decisions and agency are part of that secondary chain of causation. So sometimes you'll find someone who's in um, sort of the Calvinist reform camp, like we mostly find ourselves in, who will be really zealous and will say, we don't have any free will. You didn't choose Jesus, Jesus chose you. It is not the case that we didn't choose Jesus. Now, the reason we chose Jesus is because God saved us, he elected us, he regenerated us, he decreed that we would do that. We sometimes think of this agency this ability to bring about effects in the world. And when I say effects, I just mean anything that happens is an effect. And all effects have a cause. We think that this idea of effects in the world, that there's like this big pie of agency, this big pie of ability to bring about effects. And so God has the biggest piece of that. And we maybe have a little tiny piece of that. Or God has no piece of that and it's just us. Or God has all of it and we don't have anything. In reality... God has his own pie. He has his own way of bringing about things in the world. And our slice of the pie doesn't change anything about his slice of the pie. He retains all of his godly agency, even as we retain all of our creaturely agencies. So when James says in the next section here, when he says, rather than theorizing that we have control over these things. He says, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. When he's saying that, he's not arguing that we simply let go and let God, right? There's all these great pithy sayings about allowing God to be sovereign. We bear responsibility for our choices and our actions. If we choose to be lazy in the faith, that's on us. That's our responsibility. If we choose to neglect the ordinary means of grace that God has given us, we neglect the reading and the preaching of the word, we neglect the Lord's Supper, um, we, we neglect joining with the saints when we have an opportunity, that, that falls on us. God decreed that and it unfolds according to his will, but that's still our responsibility. And he's not saying that we somehow attach the phrase, if the Lord wills, as like a magic formula that protects us from arrogance. We fall into the same trap when we pray and we just kind of attach in Jesus' name to the end of it. Just like when Christ says to pray in his name, he's not saying just say in Jesus' name and everything's fine. He's commanding us to pray in a way that is representative of our union with him. In the same way, James's command here to say, if the Lord wills, is a command for us to live our lives understanding and living in light of the fact that God is sovereign and, and, and trusting in his providence. He calls us to first and foremost to understand God's providence. That's what we're trying to do here today. We're trying to understand what it is we mean, what it is that the church historically has meant when we say the Lord has providence or we trust in the Lord's providence. The word providence actually is a very interesting word. It means to see ahead of time. It comes from, from a Latin combination that's basically like pro-video. Vid, vid is the Latin prefix for seeing. So when we talk about the Lord's providence, we're talking about the fact that the Lord sees the end from the beginning. And he's able 
to sustain us and to provide for us because he sees our needs ahead of time. It's more expansive than that, of course, but that's where the word comes from. So we're called to understand it. We can't understand it if we don't study, if we don't listen when preaching is happening, if we don't seek to educate ourselves in the ways that are available to us. He's calling us to depend on it, to depend on God's providence. I don't know about you, but I often feel as though I need to be sort of God in my own life. I need to keep things together. I need to keep things moving. If I don't do it, who will? Now, as I said, we bear responsibility for this. We bear responsibility for maintaining our lives. We bear responsibility for our health. We bear responsibility for all these things. But we cannot do that in a way where we make ourselves the God of our own little universe. We have to recognize that God is wise. This ties all the way back to the beginning of James, where James can say, count it, all is joy, my brothers, when you face trials of every kind. We can count trials as joy, whether it's a trial, um, you know, a, a trial of health or a bill that comes in that we're not expecting or a car breaks down or somebody we love hurts us. We can count that as joy, not just in some utilitarian fashion where we know something good is going to come out of it. That's sometimes encouraging when we know and we can trust that there's going to be a benefit that comes out of a hard, something hard. When, when the, the meeting gets put on your calendar at work and you, you know that it means you're not going to have a job at the end of the day, right? Or when you're waiting for a test result back and you are confident that uh, it's, it's going to show that the cancer came back or my back pain is not treatable. Knowing that even in, without thinking about God's sovereignty, knowing that most of the time people learn and grow from those things. Most of the time, people look back on hard times in their life and they can see that they became a stronger person. There's some encouragement in that. But the main encouragement we draw from the scripture is not just that things are going to work out. It's that God brings about all things for the good of his people. He brings about all things for the good of his people. So we understand it by studying. We depend on it by applying what we understand in trusting that the Lord is good and that he has our best interest in mind. And then we trust God for who he is. First and foremost, of course, in salvation, but then also in our day-to-day -day lives. When I'm faced with something difficult, just like I prayed during the pastoral prayer, it's okay. It's totally okay to ask God to take away the pain or to restore that relationship or to protect my job. That is acceptable. God commands us to cast our cares upon him. He has broad shoulders and he can hold that up. But if all we're ever doing is asking God to take away the pain, we're not really trusting in his providence. So we need to start from a place of thanking God for the hard providences in our life, even as we ask him to alleviate that suffering. That leads us to the last two verses here, the application. James says, as it is you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. This passage um, certainly means that if we know the right thing, if we know what it is that God is requiring of us and we choose not to do it, it's, that's sin. That's a straightforward verbal application of this. And that's not wrong. 
But in the context here, the right thing to do that we know and we don't do is depending on the Lord's will. It is saying, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The boasting and bragging he's talking about is this perspective of self-sufficiency and autonomy that his audience was exhibiting. It was this arrogant perspective that these people had that they were the gods of their own little universe. That's the boasting and the bragging. And that boasting is evil. This continues the theme we've had the last three weeks. That arrogant, selfish boasting and ambition is from the devil. It is a satanic, earthly, unwise wisdom. It leads us to this boasting. It leads us to tear each other apart. It leads us to have selfishness that we gain at the, the cost of someone else. It leads us to slander each other. And ultimately, as we found at the end of the last week's sermon, it leads us to stand over God in judgment. This person that you've got in my church, I can't stand them. Why would you even bring them here, God? Again, I'm thankful that in our, our congregation, we don't, we don't seem to suffer from that kind of backbiting like a lot of churches do. Man, this new coworker I got, I can't believe it. They're the worst. Why would you why would you put me in this position? That is selfish, self-deifying boasting. And it is wicked. It is okay to be upset. It is okay to ask God questions, to seek answers, to seek his wisdom. But at the end of the day, if we ever cross that line into questioning God's wisdom in a situation, we've now made ourselves God. The attitude that denies or minimizes God's exhaustive providence is evil. This is true not only of our theological positions. So there are lots of theological um, schools of thought out there that would say everything I've said today is a lie. You know, we talk about Arminianism, we talk about Roman Catholicism. There are lots of theologies out there that deny God's sovereignty in this way. It's evil. It's wicked. It is a, a man-centered theology that places us in a place of superiority got to God. More so, it's true in reference to the way we live. There's two examples in the scripture that I, I'm going to just point you to maybe to read this week. We can see in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is, um, it's this really interesting passage of scripture. Daniel basically says to Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be this great uh, tree and, and you're going to be the great tree that sort of like restores the world. And a few months later, Nebuchadnezzar is on his balcony. and He looks out over his kingdom and he says, look at this. This is Babylon. Look at how great this is. I've built this. And he immediately is driven crazy by the Lord. And he spends multiple years living in the wilderness, eating grass like an ox. He is immediately cut down to size. When we look in the book of Acts, lest we think that this is just sort of that God, that mean God of the Old Testament that does that. In Acts chapter 12, we read about one of the Herods. There's about seven or eight different Herods in scripture. It can get really confusing, but it doesn't matter for this point. At one point, Herod addresses his people. And it's actually after he did some particularly wicked things. He addresses his people and he says, uh, he, he gives them some address. He promises them peace. He does something with their food supply. 
And the crowd shouts, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And because Herod didn't immediately correct them, it's not even something Herod said. They say, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Herod lets them say that, and he died. He was struck down and eaten by worms. This is no joking matter. And none of us are likely to ever be in a position of influence of the scale of someone like Herod or Nebuchadnezzar. But when we're in that work meeting and someone says, man, you did a really, really great job on that. There is always a temptation for us first and foremost to go, I really did do a great job on that, didn't I? I, I rock. I'm really great. When the right answer should be, the Lord's been merciful to me. The Lord has been merciful to me. He's given me this skill set. Thank you for the compliment, but the glory goes to the Lord. I've never said that in a work meeting, if I'm being really honest. It's a scary proposition when you work in the uh, political culture of most of the institutions around us. That's a scary prospect. But that's what we should be saying. That's what James means when he says, if the Lord wills. It's this life that radically depends on, trusts in, and understands, and now demonstrates and explains God's providence to those around us. So the good that he ought to do, which we often know and do not, is to give God the proper glory for what the good things are that he's done and to strive hard to overcome sin. Because even though God's providence and his sovereignty, our sin happens somehow mysteriously within God's providence, that's part of the secret things is that we don't fully and can't fully understand how that works. Even though that's the case, we're still responsible for it. So we are responsible to strive for it. Last scripture reference that I'll give you, and and this is a verse that we all know very well. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and following, he says, For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you as people who are limited and finite, and we know that um, we are peering into an infinite mystery that we cannot fully comprehend. So I pray that as we continue to study your word, that you would give us grace, that you would give us insight, and that you would set up boundaries for us so that we do not try to cross into things that we have no business trying to understand. Lord, I pray that you would give us a a life that demonstrates a dependence on your providence, that you would change us, that you would make us those who are quick to give you glory and quick not to try to take it for ourselves. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.